2014 will go down as the warmest year around the globe in recorded history. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate is a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Welcome, folks, to a special episode, a panel featuring Margaret Klein-Salomon, author of Facing the Climate Emergency, How to Transform Yourself with Climate Truth. I'm Bron Gresham, and as a psychologist, I'm so proud to be introducing this episode. It's a recording of a panel event, part of the Sustainable Living Festival, and hosted by Psychology for a Safe Climate. Now, it does go on for over an hour, so I want to give you the rundown of the goodies in store for you so that you stay tuned. Carol Ride, president of Melbourne Group, Psychology for a Safe Climate, is the host, but unfortunately the sound quality was poor, so she's humbly given us permission to skip straight through to the speakers. Thanks, Carol. So after hearing from Margaret Klein-Salomon, there are three other psychology and psychotherapy experts who each speak for 10 minutes. They are equally diverse and entertaining. After Margaret, we hear from Sally Gillespie author of Climate Crisis and Consciousness, Reimagining Our World and Ourselves. Following Sally is Charles Lefevre, Vice President of Psychology for a Safe Climate, who speaks about their workshops for emotional engagement. Then we hear from Susie Burke, who reflects in the most entertaining manner on her 20-year-plus journey as an activist, psychologist and mum to Melbourne's original school climate strike organiser. After the speakers, you'll hear from the audience whose heartfelt questions I'm sure will be on your mind too. Head to our show notes to learn more about the speakers, to read their contributions and find links to their resources. Find a comfy chair, grab a cup of tea and get ready to feel inspired, listen to words of support and wise counsel. Enjoy. Thanks so much, Carol, and thanks to everyone for being here. Before I get started, I just have a couple of questions so I can just kind of get a better sense of the audience. Who was at the Climate Emergency Summit? Okay, so maybe half, 60%, most. Okay, and and also, who has read my book? No no pressure? All right, all right, uh, okay. And then then finally, who, who has read other work of mine? Okay, great, all right, thank you. Okay, so... I'm going to talk through the book. Okay, wait, actually, that's Luke, right, in the back? All right, so let's just give Luke a round of applause. He coordinated the Climate Emergency Summit. He made that possible. Very busy person. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to talk through my book. It is a self-help book. It's kind of a new genre, a self-help book for helping people process the pain of the climate emergency and turn it into action. That's the key through line of, of the book, pain into action. And it lays out five steps to transform yourself into the hero humanity needs. So, yeah, again, no pressure, no, <laughs> just, just, just that. But, but seriously... This, it's, it's, 
it's impossible to overstate the stakes of this moment. And I think all of us who are alive here, who are able to do something like come out to a panel to, that, that are, let's say, not yet immiserated by the climate emergency, I, I really think we have a, a bottomless responsibility. And I want, I, I, my, I'm writing this book and giving this talk as part of me attempting to do everything I can to meet that responsibility and to protect humanity in the living world. And I, my goal is to, to help everyone else be able to do the same. And, and I, it's not, I mean, the idea of just responsibility, it, it's, a, it's even a little bit of an understatement because it makes it sound like it's just altruism but it's not. With the climate emergency, we actually see a merger of self-interest and altruism because I'm here fighting for myself and my own life and my family and your family and the whole human family. And I think that that merger of those forces can create the most powerful movement and fastest transformation that humanity has ever seen. Okay, so five steps to becoming a climate warrior. Number one is face climate truth. It's not rocket science. It's, you don't even need to be a climate scientist. It's, it's merely that we are careening towards the collapse of civilization and the deaths of billions of people. Drought is going, it's already happening. Drought causing food shortages, causing massive relocation domestically and internationally, causing uh, destabilization and failed states. This, ha this happened already in Syria, and it is going to spread. And, and that's not even including the fires and floods and epidemics and all of the other horrors, but that's the, that's the main civilization-destroying signal is it's about food shortage. Okay, so the truth is we are not, we are over the cliff, right? We don't need to hit the brakes. We need to reverse as quickly as humanly possible. We've warmed the planet approximately one degree already, and you all saw this summer what one degree is doing. There is no more, I mean, this, we are already at a dangerous level of warming. There is no carbon budget left. I like to say, you know, we should have been at zero emissions about mm, 20, 30 years ago. So in lieu of that, how about mm, right now? Okay, so... Part of understanding climate truth is understanding how much we've all been lied to. Obviously, the fossil fuel industry has been investing over a billion dollars in a campaign of lies and misinformation, and Rupert Murdoch and the conservatives and the Republicans, all of that. But also, we need to face the fact that the environmental movement and the climate movement uh, has not been truthful. They have ideas that I consider, I consider this idea actually the worst idea in the world, that fear doesn't work as a motivator and we can't scare people. Because, okay, so if you start from that kind of just wild idea, but if you start from that assumption, but the truth is inherently terrifying... What do you do? You are silent, 
you euphemize, you don't tell the truth. You beat around it, you tell a little part of it. And that's, and that's what we've been seeing for, for decades is um, a, a hopeful, optimistic story about whatever, jobs and solar and, you know, nobody talk about the collapse of civilization. But, but fear evolved in humans and other animals to translate the perception of risk into self-protective action. Okay, if we didn't feel fear, we wouldn't be here because we would have our ancestors would have just stood there while uh, predators got closer and closer and then ate them. Right? Fear tells us danger, danger, do something. Okay, so fear is, of course, it works. It's one of the most reliable human motiv- motivators there is, and the so we. Some people think the only possible response to fear is panic. But think about how many activists and organizers you know who are motivated by fear. I am certainly one. And that fear is not the opposite of love. In fact, it comes because of how much I love this world and I love my family and that I am so afraid of losing it. Okay, so face climate truth. That's step one. Step two, which I kind of already got into, is accept fear, grief, and other painful feelings. This is a general psychological orientation towards feelings that is applicable for any realm of life. It is honestly, it's amazing to me that our society doesn't teach this in schools. It's 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 so sad. But I mean, because we have this relationship towards our feelings that is judgmental and censorious, right? Oh, no, don't feel that way. Like, what are you, like, you know, evil or don't feel that way? That's so wrong or whatever. And that is not a good or healthy approach. Whatever you feel about anything, and especially about the climate emergency, it's fine. It is just a feeling, The only thing that matters, the only thing that carries any moral weight is our actions. And we do need to be very thoughtful about how we act in this world. But there's no such thing as a thought crime or a feeling crime. And the more open we are and welcoming to these feelings, the the, actually the more control we have over our actions. If we repress our feelings, they drive us without our knowing. So I spoke about fear. And, and welcoming it. fear The fear you feel makes sense. It is rational. It comes from a good part of yourself, and we need to listen to it. I want to talk also about grief, because I, I think it's critically important. We've already lost so much. Millions of people in this last summer, just here in Australia, a billion animals and millions of species heading towards extinction. I, I, the, the losses are uh, hard, hard to even imagine and, and hard to bear. But I encourage everyone to honor yourself for your grief. Grief happens because of love. We grieve people who have already died because of the climate emergency, generally the world's poorest people, because they matter. They matter to us. And when they die, we feel it. 
And that is a good thing. That is our connectedness. We do not want to cut that off and make ourselves inhuman as these losses mount. We also need to grieve the future that we thought we had. When I was growing up, there was a narrative around progress. The future was bright, and I could do anything I wanted to do. I assume many of you were told something similar. I decided that I wanted to be a clinical psychologist, like my father, and I thought I'm going to have a family and a private practice, and I'm going to write books, and it's going to be great, right? That's a great life. And it was very hard to realize that it wasn't going to happen, that it wasn't going to work. Sure, I could be, I could be a clinical psychologist still in, in New York and, and living that life maybe for 10 more years maybe, I don't know, until I have to move or something. But it's, it, it, it's not going to work before the practical issues of collapse will come to my life. It's, it's, it's not going to work because I can't have a perfect life that's separate from a collapsing world, that it's not going to be satisfying. So I encourage everyone... I mean, it's, it's sad, I, and I even, I, you know, even as I say it, I feel somewhat guilty, you know, like I'm taking something from you. But it's, I encourage everyone to really think about the life that you thought you had and what you were promised and how sad it is that that's not going to happen. But what, happen, what does happen when you grieve for the life you thought you had brings us to step three which is to reimagine yourself and your life story. When you grieve what you thought you had, it opens up space for something new. A new person, a new mission, a new, a new life. And I think it's important to think about your whole life narrative in clinical psychology that's really important, right? Help, just helping people work out yeah, who am I? How did I get here? Why, why, whatever. Why do I have the problems I have and the skills I have? And so what if everything in your life, the good things, the challenging things, what if that was all leading you to this moment, to this challenge? And if you start to think about that and think about how you were raised and your grandparents and their ancestors and what you learned in school and your various trials what if what if it what if this is the point to prepare you in a unique and critical way for this epic struggle i th- for me thinking that way has unlocked a self-concept, a story of self that is so much more satisfying than the one I previously had, which was about achievement and getting mine, right? My success, my money, whatever. And yeah, my my resume. And it feels so much better 
to live for a mission. So step four is to enter emergency mode. Emergency mode is a psychological concept that I wrote about, Carol mentioned, that uh, a whole country can enter, such as the United States and Australia during World War II, when uh, there's an understanding that there is an overriding priority that we have to win this war or else nothing else matters. There's, there is a sense of fear, but it's a motivating fear in which the nation comes together, all hands on deck, no end but victory. Resources are highly devoted to the cause, focus, command and control legislation. It's, it's a fundamentally different mode of governing than normal mode in which, you know, you've got a lot of different priorities, resources are sp split among them, focus is split among them. But individuals can also enter emergency mode. And this is, you know, it's, it's critically important because the only thing that any of us can fully control is ourselves and our own actions. So what what you do and what you do with your pain and your skills and motivation is, is the most important question. What the government's going to do or what other people are going to do, you know, we're, we're going to try and influence. But, yeah, I mean, for, it, you have to start with yourself. And so an individual enters emergency mode like if, if this room was on fire, right? And suddenly things shift from, you know, talking, normal, sitting, to, okay, focus. Everybody, we need to get to safety. We need to save ourselves and each other. That, that's, again, the overwhelming top priority. All focus, resources are dedicated towards that until we've achieved safety. And it's a, it's a particular type of mental functioning that is fundamentally different from normal mode. So a fire is, you know, less than an hour, but the climate emergency is going to be for, you know, hopefully not for the rest of our lives, but for the foreseeable future. So it's, it's a little bit different because, you know, you have to rest and have some relationships and, you know, cook dinner and all of this, these like normal things. But living in emergency mode for climate means waking up, feeling the fear in your stomach, and working all day or as much of the day as you possibly can towards protecting humanity in the living world. I, I left my career. I encourage anyone who can make such a leap to do it. Now is the time. If you can't do that, then can you go to part-time? Can you move in with parents or roommates or whatever this is I, I I run through these kinds of possibilities in in the book but yeah this is not a time for uh you know two hours a week kind of hobbyist kind of commitment so yeah so then step five of the book is join the climate emergency movement because that, it, that it's our only hope right there's been a lot of conversation in climate around personal consumption your carbon footprint, right? But that, I mean, and that's fine. 
I do plenty of things in my own life around that topic, but those are lifestyle things. It's not politics, and it will not protect us. So the idea of looking in the mirror, thinking, what can I do? It must be part of a collective political effort to transform, to, to take over the government and transform our economy and society as quickly as humanly possible to zero emissions plus drawdown and try to avoid the collapse of civilization while we're doing it. So, I, I mean, like I'm, you know, obviously I'm very, very oriented towards the truth I encourage everyone to take that same approach. I don't think, I just, there's so much denial and euphemism and bullshit and our, our you know, minds are kind of hardwired for that, right? Like we have a psychological function to protect ourselves from painful experiences and painful information, but it's not helping us and we need to make a conscious effort to face this reality even though it hurts, to talk about it with others, even though it's awkward. This is, this is the one thing that I recommend that every single person do is to talk about the climate emergency as much as possible with friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, sports teams, book club, church, everybody, because there is a, a societal silence around this and by just bringing it up as much as possible with strangers. It's an, it's an intervention. It is, it is a political intervention into denial. And so, and when you talk about the climate emergency, you don't need to be a scientist. You don't need to sound like a scientist. You don't need to go home and read a bunch of scientific papers in order to uh, be able to tell them to your neighbor. Talk, talk from the heart. Talk about, talk about how afraid you are or how sad you are or how angry you are or, how, or, or ask them and ask them what they're feeling about it or, how much, or what they're thinking. I, I have people say to me all the time, huh, no one ever asked me how I feel about climate. Isn't that a little strange? I mean, so, so by, by opening these conversations, you will find many people who will say, oh my God, me too. I thought I was all alone. No one ever talked to me about this before. The issue of how to then take the next step and actually join the climate emergency movement is very complicated. It's choosing... Your, finding your place in the movement is as complex and personal as finding a career. In, in my book, I try to walk through many different ways of engagement, such as organize your community for a climate emergency declaration, or join a school strike, or you know, join a research team, like based on, based on bringing, looking at what the movement needs and looking at what your skills are. So I encourage people to check that out and use it as a tool for reflection. But the, the most important thing is to get started. It's not, you know, it's, yeah, this is not a time to go and ponder it for 
you know, six months, get started now. And it's a, it's an ongoing process. We should always be asking, how can, how can I be more effective? Is this, is this the right role for me? What, you know, how, how can I put more of my time into this movement? So yeah, that's um, just wrapping up. That's, that's the sequence that I recommend to uh, really look, look at this catastrophe, deal with the pain that it causes, and like I said, turn that pain into action. No one is coming to save us, but if we do this together, I think we still have a chance. So I, I really appreciate... I really appreciate you. Even, even listening to this kind of talk takes courage and takes emotional fortitude. So I appreciate you doing that, and I, I hope you continue walking this path and, and taking those steps. Thank you very much, Margaret. Our second panellist, our first panellist is actually Sally Gillespie. Sally has worked as a Jungian psychotherapist and she is the co-founder of a sister group to Psychology for a Safe Climate. I'm going to hold it up. (laughs) I feel like I'm being (laughs) bottle-fed. No, no, I really promise I'll hold it close. (laughs) I'm very sorry. Oh, I can hear the difference. So, Sally... I'll start again. She's a Jungian psychotherapist and the co-founder of a sister group to ours called the Climate Wellbeing Network in Sydney. She has just published a book called The Climate Crisis and Consciousness, Reimagining Our World and Ourselves, which really chimes into what Margaret's been talking about as well. This book fosters reflection on how we reimagine ourselves and our relationship to Earth. Her style of writing is lively, engaging and very personal and she encourages the reader to fathom new depths in themselves. So over to Sally. Thanks very much. Thank you, Carol. And thank you, Margaret, for a, a sobering and necessary talk because we are here to really think about how do we face into difficult realities. And what I want to talk about tonight, which is you know, largely what the book is based on really, is the importance of ongoing reflective conversations in groups in order to be able to connect with, explore, mature and heal ourselves and our world. Because not only do we have to face into this emergency and take urgent action, we also need to reimagine ourselves and our world because the crisis we have ended up in has come out of a particular worldview. And it is a separatist worldview, a worldview which sees human being and activity as separate to the natural world. Now, clearly that's wrong, and yet this worldview has had huge, huge influence. And some might say back to the Enlightenment times, we can go back right the way to Greek philosophers to to see how this worldview has evolved. And we're now on a crash course where we must relinquish this worldview. And yet this is not an easy thing to do. You know, we are brought up within a conditioning and and within a worldview. And and 
it takes work to do that. And this is where the reflected conversations are important. It's also important that we keep working through our emotional and psychological reactions to, to engaging. I did doctoral research back in 2010. And really, like many people who do PhDs, uh, it sounded fancy, but I had a question which was very personal, which is, what's going to happen to me the more immersed I get in climate uh, awareness and engagement, which is what was happening to me? Am I just going to end up feeling really gloomy and despairing and, and will you know, people start to cross the street? But, you know, I was a depth psych- psychotherapist and I had a real inkling that actually, if rather than avoiding these feelings, if we could sit with them and explore them, that not only would we become more resilient and tolerant in dealing with those feelings, that actually something would transform and change and that this could be a very creative space. And I was very fortunate. I was joined for, it was a process of a year of having group conversations that went over a year with seven other people. And what I found was that as and what we all found was that it was an incredibly rich process that not only left us feeling more resilient and engaged with climate issues, it actually opened up these very deep and rich discussions which helped us to change consciousness and to really tease out all kinds of meanings and understandings that we could not have done by ourselves because this is a collective crisis and we need collective conversations, collaborative conversations to work our way through them. So when I'm thinking about these reflective conversations, I sort of see it like a three-layer cake um, because there's these different layers to the conversation. One layer is about connection and it's about connection connecting to our feelings in ways that Margaret's talked about and the importance of acknowledging and sharing those emotions in safe and open conversations. So we need groups where we agree to to really listen into each other non-judgmentally and to be able to open up to what the real feelings are. Many people in climate awareness, climate engagement, feel quite isolated for just the reason Margaret was talking about. There's been a taboo on having the conversations, let alone saying how we really feel. That's starting to shift a little bit and it, it, it really needs to. But often we actually have to set up a conversation and a group conversation and an ongoing group conversation to be able to open and explore these things so that they don't stop us but they enrich us. And that we can recognise in one another that what I feel is what you feel. And sometimes what we can experience in the conversations is we can find out things we didn't know we felt because someone else expresses something and suddenly something that's just been there on the edge of our consciousness comes, comes into focus. We need more than an individual mind on this. You know, we've been sold this whole thing about the individualistic worldview by neoliberal worldviews and it's, it's serving us very badly indeed and we are needing these kind of conversations and these kinds of ways of connecting with others to, to work our way into a much more systemic understanding and also to see that yes these emotions come they go we move around with them I have yet to sit in a group where everyone just sits there depressed someone comes in and says I feel utter despair and we can listen, or it might be me who said that, 
And someone else might say, yeah, I've been feeling that too. And then someone says, you know, I've been feeling kind of hopeful this week. And they have a story to tell. And this is how we put it all together, the bigger picture. Because we move around and there's kind of a protective mechanism when we sit in a group to, that helps us not to just all fall into one place. But if we really listen and bring our full selves in to bring, build up a whole, a very full picture. And to recognise that it is very normal to emotionally seesaw through the kinds of feelings that I know you all have, we all have. And through becoming familiar with them and listening to them in others as well as acknowledging them in themselves, we learn how to contain them, we learn how to just go, it's sort of like surfing the wave a bit, I guess. And we also learn when we might need to take a little time out or find ways and we can learn again from others how to take care of ourselves. Part of it is learning to tolerate our complexities and contradictions. Does anyone feel just always the same thing in terms of climate awareness? No, I mean there's complexities, there's contradictions, we live in a deeply denialist culture and we find these pockets of denial that pop up in ourselves at times, partly because how do you negotiate a denialist day, you know, society from your awake place. It's, it's, a, it's a negotiation. And again, this kind of consciousness raising really helps us with that. And it also helps us be compassionate with ourselves and with others that we, we do fall into contradictions at times or feel overwhelmed by the complexity. And listening to all that helps us to be a bit less black and white in our thoughts and feelings towards ourselves and towards others. We get less polarised and perhaps start to see a little bit more of the connection. We also, I think, need to be very aware that there is a mainstream cultural bias towards thinking and doing. And that means that we often sideline feeling and reflection. <laughs> it's a distorting bias and it has destructive consequences for our world and our society. And it's, it's very difficult in a group too. And even in green groups, there can be a kind of culture that can come up that can fuel constant, even manic activity, which can feed into burnout. And it's so important that in our transformative work that we, we stop and make these spaces for reflections. And that opens up creativity. Rosemary Randall and Paul Hoggett, two climate psychologists, have done research on the emotional resilience of long-term climate activists. And they found that this was really a key thing, developing supportive peer networks, where people can share emotions in non-judgmental conversations, regular check-ins, debriefings and discussion groups. We also need reflective conversations to be able to explore the richness and depth of the existential issues that the climate crisis throws up. Okay, thanks. Okay, so there's a lot of richness in the ex existential issues and we need a bit of time to navigate them. In the research group I ran, we talked about things like apocalyptic imaginings. These need to be shared to not haunt us. We talked a lot about death and how we felt about death. We talked about our relationship to the natural world, to material life, how we formed values and beliefs, indigenous knowledge, spirituality, changing worldviews, and so on. We need collaborative conversations to expand our awareness, transform meanings in ways that can inform wise action. We also sometimes need to get beyond the intellect. And that's why I think in conversations it's good to bring in a poem 
maybe share a dream, to tune into what our body's saying and feeling as well as what our head is. That will deepen the conversation and it will deepen the connections and it will rouse the imagination. And also, often out of that comes some kind of symbolically potent meanings and energy which we can do well to heed. And the final layer of the cake is maturing and healing. We have to mature psychologically and politically in order to address the climate crisis. We mature when we relinquish a self-absorbed focus and wake up to a larger relational view of life. In other words, we put our individual self in context of the larger systems, natural systems, social systems. And this is a maturing. It's one that's been discouraged, I think, within the individualistic worldview. And neoliberalism, which when you think about it, is a highly immature fantasy, really based on narcissistic (laughs) beliefs. (laughs) You know, the idea that we can all live separately and that there is, as Thatcher said, no society clearly immature fantasy. So we need to come into this maturity where we can accept the realities of our individual smallness and limits at the same time as opening up to a systemic awareness, increased feelings of relatedness, which provide us with the expansive foundations for collaborative action. So it's a reworking of how we think of ourselves and how we think of ourselves in terms of being part of a system and part of a, a human society, a human you know, organisation, but also the natural world. We, we need to understand that we are embedded in an ecologically created life. So if we can listen deeply and compassionately to bring all these complex conflicts and connections up in ourselves... It encourages us also to withdraw projections from others. You know, this kind of blaming and shaming. Paulo Freire, who talked about developing political consciousness, said it was an enormous step in maturity when we just didn't always think about who was to blame or, and sometimes blaming ourselves and started to see how the system, how the situation we're in has been created by a systemic complex of understandings and meanings and actions and that the way we can transform that is again through systemic work and collaborations. So no one person, no matter how inspired, can devise new cultural myths or worldviews or beliefs to navigate this crisis. We have to brew cultural change and we brew it in the cauldron, I think, of collective conversations. We have much to learn here in Australia from the deep wisdom of Aboriginal yarning groups with their practices of deep listening, learning through stories, experience, consultation and collaborative forms of knowledge making. We can't make... We can't solve problems from the same mindset that creates them, as Einstein famously said. To heal our world, we must heal ourselves, and to do this, we must participate in ongoing reflective and collaborative dialogues. So I urge you in your groups, in your neighbourhoods, in your, your friendship groups, to form discussion groups or dialogue circles, even book clubs, whatever, and commit to deeply listening to one another and learning from one another and finding the deeper bondings and transforming, transforming meanings and values, as well as our actions to meet the climate crisis. Thank you very much, Sally.
Our next speaker is Charles Lefevre. Charles is a psychiatrist and the Vice President of Psychology for a Safe Climate. He's a very active writer and presenter, um, including have, having made a number of submissions to government on the importance of recognising the mental health impacts of climate change on all citizens and also on those working in the, very closely on climate uh, um, issues, such as scientists and researchers and policy makers, as well as activists. So over to you, Charles. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Carol. Thank you very much, Margaret. Thank you, Sally. I wanted to talk about the work of our group, Psychology for a Safe Climate, and a few other odds and ends. Who's heard of Psychology for a Safe Climate? Who's been to a workshop? Great. We started as a voluntary group of psychologists about 10 years ago. Initially, we used our knowledge to understand the emotional aspects of climate change and have conversations about it. We learnt about the power of denial, which uh, still occurs, of course, and gets ever more slippery. Our Prime Minister claims now to accept human-induced climate change, but he does not accept or speak of the dire implications. This is serious and deliberate implicatory denial, and he also perverts the meaning of the word resilience. Margaret, however, tells us the climate truth, and thank you for that. Anyway... We decided that working with those not facing at least some of the truths was not that helpful, to be honest. <laughs> and we started to be invited to run workshops with different titles, mainly around climate grief, or at times what we called beating burnout. And we've continued to do these workshops for people who work very closely with climate change. Environmental and climate activist groups, including Extinction Rebellion, and researchers and policy makers. And uh, these people are found, tended to find them very helpful. They're not designed explicitly to mobilise. We're mainly dealing with the at least partly mobilised, but it allows them to stay mobilised and hopefully more mobilised than before. We always start with an acknowledgement of country at the beginning of our workshops. As Lydia Thorpe said at the Climate Summit, our first, people, our first peoples have actually been on a war footing already for 250 years. Through their respect for country, they offer us a way of living in our climate-changed world. In our three-hour grief workshops, we talk of the importance of staying for the whole workshop, keeping confidentiality, and that it is not a substitute for individual therapy. These are important boundaries for our framework. The workshops have four segments. One where we do an art activity, which is not about art, although actually we're just about to put up a slide of somebody who actually is an artist and was at a workshop that we did since the bushfires. And I actually think it's an extraordinary piece of art. <laughs> of course, our art is not about art. Our art workshops are not about art and we do not, we're not judgmental about people's art. <laughs> so we, we do the art workshops in um, small groups facilitated by one of us where people initially are bringing to mind instances or experiences where they've, which have given rise to climate grief and they notate that at the top of the piece of paper over a line but then the larger piece 
part of the paper is uh, drawing, is the feeling space for which they draw about, for about 20 minutes or so. And then they speak to their work in turn and we react in a person-centred, non-judgmental way. Following that, there's time for further links to be made. We found this is a very helpful way of allowing people to talk together about how they feel about climate change, allowing feelings to slowly emerge and be shared and mutually validated. The process is obviously often quite emotional. The feelings can be contained on the paper, in the group, and then more easily in the mind. Many feelings are talked about, what has become called ecological grief and eco-anxiety. We have witnessed those pained by the recent bushfires, their own or others' direct experience, loss of human and non-human beings, places and humanity's future. Many very difficult issues are discussed. For some time now, the issue of having children has been talked about a lot. Those who have children and grandchildren who feel so concerned for their future. Those who wonder whether to or have decided not to have children. Climate grief is not like ordinary grief. It's an ongoing grief. For me, the fires in the southwest of Tasmania last year were heart-wrenching. And now this year, Malakuta, with the scenes like Dunkirk. I'd gone bushwalking near Malakuta a few weeks before the fires. Now it's all destroyed. It was heartbreaking. This summer, it's been hard to avoid climate change. We could see it. We could smell it, it's now and it's the future and it's very frightening. Part of the grief, as Margaret has said, is about relinquishing. We all have or will have to relinquish things, whether it's places or ambitions. Margaret herself had to relinquish her future plans. It's very difficult for people of my age to talk about this. We must take responsibility for where we are now and hopefully make some reparation before we become extinct. The next shorter segment in our workshop consists of a facilitator placing a number of objects on the table. Objects often to do with nature, such as a feather, which my grandson gave me on the beach at Wye River a couple of days ago. People are asked to choose an object that speaks to them. People speak about the meaning of the object in their hand, which can help connect them to things that are often meaningful and inspiring, though sometimes tinged with grief, and can ground them in the here and now after the emotion of the art activity. Then we have a break. A longer segment after the break is chiefly about self-care, grounding, mindful self-cashion, so <laughs> self-compassion, <laughs> or similar exercises. We find that some very basic neuroscience is helpful. For example, talking about the fear and alarm centre versus the executive centre of the brain. Our booklet, Staying Engaged in the Climate and Bushfire Crisis, has been used by a number of groups like GetUp and Environment Victoria. It's on the front page of our website and looks something like this. I don't know how many of you have seen it. Yeah, great. We finish with evaluation of what people have got out of the group and what they might need moving forward. 
It also allows some thinking around what an organisation or group might need to help sustain it. It's very important that we in PSC, Psychology for a Safe Climate, work together as a group and share feelings and try out our workshop ideas ourselves and model working as a group with those at our workshops. We, were, we, well I, believe that the connection with others is vital in our climate-changed world, as uh, Sally was also saying. It's so important to restore a sense of community. It is an important part of Extinction Rebellion that there's a regenerative culture, care for the other. This goes against the individualistic, narcissistic, consumerist, neoliberal values which we've been talking about. We need to restore community and group contact and action. And to reverse what Margaret Thatcher said, there's no such thing as an individual. We stress that climate action is not just good for the planet, but also for one's mental health. In October last year, uh, we were invited by Joe Dodds, who happens to be here in the audience today, to do a weekend workshop in Tatra on the New South Wales coast, not that far from Malakuta, which had suffered a bushfire about two years ago now, losing 70 houses. We offered a grief workshop, which was about feelings about the fire and also for many about climate change. It was the first time that many had shared their feelings about the, f the fire in a large group. We also used two models, one called transformational resilience, which offers mindful self-care and using adversity as a way to find new purpose and personal and social well-being. This is true resilience, what Margaret calls emotional muscle. And the other model, the work that reconnects by Joanna Macy, reconnecting us with ourselves and with the earth. These models are very helpful and allow greater depth. We hope to use this approach with other communities. Hope is a key thing. To feel despair is often necessary in grief, but it's vital to find hope and purpose, what Joanna Macy calls active hope. PSC has been deluged with work since the federal election, but particularly now with the bushfires, where it remains a time of great grief and fear related to the bushfires. Though many of the fires are out, the feelings remain. This has been confronting for organisations and individuals how to respond to climate change that is here and now. We need to find ways to offer more workshops. We've been voluntary, but it has become untenable. We want to continue to work with a range of organisations, but also more communities to allow them to become more truly resilient. We need more resources, especially money, to allow our voluntary staff to be paid. We also want to do more work with those who counsel others, psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, GPs, etc. We have two aims. One is to help them have a more climate-informed practice, and the other is to help form networks of counsellors who can both support each other and do similar work to ours, allowing an Australia-wide network of climate emergency-aware counsellors. We plan to have a conference later in the year to give momentum to this. Practising psychoanalytic psychotherapy, I was delighted to see that Margaret stresses its value and also that Nancy McWilliams, a much-admired psychoanalytic therapist, endorsed Margaret's book. 
The climate, this climate psychology work can lead to what's called post-traumatic growth or to new meaning in life, to accept both climate truth and emotional truth. Finding such meaning can be incredibly sustaining and can allow joy in the beauty of the present, what Jem Bendel has called doom and bloom as opposed to doom and gloom. It's time for us to think more about death in this existential crisis. The existentialists, of course, spoke of this. Heidegger believed that it's only in being toward death that one can become the person one truly is. Reconciliation with death can fill us with the preciousness of life and what is truly important and the need to look after our life and all life. We need to have a new consciousness. Truly accepting climate truth is similar. Initially full of grief and fear, it can lead to the desire to act authentically, as Margaret has said, and also to find joy. To finish, I will go to Freud. He wrote a beautiful paper on transience in 1915. He describes a conversation in 1913, probably with the poet Rilke. Freud stated his belief that transience increases the value of life, but we have to be able to mourn to appreciate this. This is what Ma uh, Margaret's been saying. A year after that conversation, war broke out and robbed the world of its beauty. Freud wrote, with some editing by me, it destroyed not only the beauties of the countrysides through which it passed, it shattered our pride in the achievements of our civilization. It robbed us of very much that we had loved and showed us how ephemeral were many things that we'd regarded as changeless. Mourning, as we know, however painful it may be, comes to a spontaneous end. Then we are once more free to replace the lost objects by fresh ones, equally or still more precious. It is to be hoped that the same will be true of the losses caused by this war. We shall build up again, and perhaps on firmer ground, and more lastingly than before. Thank you. Thank you very much, Charles. And now it's over to Susie Burke, who is the author of the Climate Change Empowerment Handbook, uh, which is a downloadable resource on the web and has been used a great deal in schools for teachers. She's also the mother of one of the leaders of the student climate strikers in Victoria. So she's got first-hand experience of kitchen table conversations about, and can tell us about how to support children into activism and the fight for their future. So over to you, Susie. Thank you. Thanks, Carol. Thank you, everyone else as well. I thought I might uh, talk on three topics today. I thought I might talk as a psychologist and talk as a parent and talk as an activist as well. So just to start off with, my work as a psychologist has involved working at the Australian Psychological Society for the last 17 years. I'm not there anymore, but during my time there, I focused specifically on looking at the work on disaster recovery and preparing for disasters, and also on climate change and other environmental threats. And the work that I did there involved writing this Climate Change Empowerment Handbook, which looked at eight uh, strategies from psychological science around how to help people to engage with climate change. And it starts off with acknowledge feelings and it moves on to, you know, create social norms, use the social norms of people 
going into climate emergency mode and amplify those norms and make that a normal thing for people to do, which is what Margaret's talking about. And the, the third one was talk about it. You know, make sure that you every opportunity that you have turn a conversation about whatever you're talking about into a conversation about climate change and, and so on and so forth. And then more recently um, at the APS, together with the help of Anne Sanson, developmental psychologist here and an awesome psychological member, we wrote the, a couple of guides for parents. And the first one was around how to talk with, your children, with children about climate change and how to help children cope with climate change. And, and the second one was how to raise children for a climate-altered world or raising children to thrive in a climate-altered world. So I might just pause on that for a moment and just talk about my self as an activist because of course I've always been a psychologist and I've always been an activist and for the last 21 years I've been a parent and they've all got a little bit muddled up together but so 21 years ago I moved to live in an eco village in Jajawarang country in Castlemaine which is where I still live and this was a um, eco village that was co-founded by David Holmgren who was the originator of permaculture and an awesome sustainability guru and so I was bringing my children up in the forest out there and I started one of the first forest kindergartens that we have in Victoria and then when I was working on this work later on with Anne looking at how to help children to develop nature connectedness one of the things that has come out of some of the research is you know obviously the importance of helping children to first fall in love with the natural world and um, be able to be in nature so that they can then be with nature and being with nature means being able to interact with it and, you know, climb trees and walk along logs and build cubby houses and things like that so that eventually when they're older they can be for nature and they can act for nature and want to protect nature and this is what we're seeing with the children that are getting involved in the school strikes. And so also as an activist in my community up in Castlemaine together with a group I've been involved in a number of different groups and some friends and I were wanting to ramp up the work that we were involved in because of my awareness of the enormous threat of climate change so we sat back and we thought okay well what's going to give us best bang for our buck and we thought that probably it was to teach people how to break the law and uh, engage in civil disobedience and get arrested so we started up a group called Central Vic Climate Action and we had no affiliation with anybody because nobody wanted to touch us and we started to run workshops for people around how to engage in civil disobedience and since then we've had an enormous amount of fun you know having lie-ins and die-ins and freezes and all sorts of nonsense in all of the big banks up in our area and up in Bendigo as well and you know various other activities and I also started then to take family holidays which I called family protest holidays and my idea of a family holiday was to take my children out into the shipping lanes in canoes to block the coal ships. We did that, we did that on Mother's Day and I've got this awesome uh, long photo of me in a canoe with one of my children and all of my children and their friends in canoes uh, with the 400 of us all lined up in the shipping in the shipping lanes in Newcastle. And then a couple of years ago, I took my family. We, had, uh, some, we did some fundraising in our community and our family and another couple of families in Castlemaine uh, went up to the Adani mine and we went and spent some time with Frontline Action of, Against Climate and we taught our children how to you know, climb trees and lock themselves onto bulldozers and things like that. So I've been clearly brainwashing my children, but when, when I get asked... 
is this what I'm doing? When a journalist puts a mic in front of me, I say, no, no, of course not. I'm just bringing up my children with, you know, environmental values and teaching them to have strong ethical principles about, you know, justice and, you know, community and civic obedience, disobedience, sorry, and all those sorts of things. And so it's, of course, no surprise that then, you know, I had, I was, we had just finished writing how to raise children to thrive in a climate-altered world. When Greta started her strike, and I read this article in The Guardian, and I passed The Guardian to my daughter, Malou, who was 13 at the time, and I said, oh, Malou, have a read of this. And she read it, and she looked up and she said... I could do that, and having just written this guide, I said, yes, yes, of course, and how could I help you? You know, what, what would you need? And so we said, oh, you need to talk to, you need to find a couple of friends. So she, you know, thought of a couple of friends, and one was Harriet and this other little boy, Callum, and together they got together, and they knew what you meant to do when you protest something that you disagree with. You go and you camp outside Bridget McKenzie's office. Margaret, you won't know this, but Bridget McKenzie is a much-shamed member of, since-left member of Parliament, who we spend a lot of time camping outside and inside her office and getting arrested and all sorts of things. So the children knew the, you know, the routine. So off they went, and they very quickly got an enormous amount of children from our own local schools and community to go with them. And, and they then set this goal of having this big strike, you know, at the end of the month or the beginning of November, I think it was. And, you know, we all remember that. That was the first big strike where there were about five or 6,000 children uh, marching through the streets in Melbourne. So, so that's, you see how it's all got a bit muddled? My psychology and my <laughs> parenting and my activism. Anyhow, just going back then to think uh, a little bit more sensibly about, you know, the challenges for parents in the climate crisis, I think it's absolutely enormous. And one of the reasons why we started our guide of talking to children about climate change was because we knew that children were hearing about climate change. They can't help but hear about it. They can't help but overhear adults talking about it or hear about it at school. And who was talking to them at home about what they thought that meant for them and how they felt about it. So initially that was our um, intention and people would often come back to us and say, well, we don't want to frighten the children. And we'd say, well, they're probably frightened anyway and you really need to talk to them about it. And so we'd give them some guidance. And then, of course, very quickly with the big movement of the school strikes and, you know, so many more children becoming engaged, we feel like if we were writing again, we'd, say, we'd be putting in a line saying, probably your children know more about climate change than you do. And so in this circumstance, you know, listen to what they know and help clarify any misunderstandings and talk to them about their feelings and ask them how can I help you in whatever it is that you might want to do. Not to expect that the children have to do it all, it's our job, we're the adults, but if the children are feeling an urge to participate, then awesome, great, you know, go with them, help them facilitate that in whatever way you can. And the other thing that Anne and I had written about in Raising Children to Thrive in a Climate-Altered World was looking at the different skills and capacities that children need. So we looked at the personal skills that they need around, you know, emotion regulation and a belief in, you know, justice and equality and flexibility and adaptability and things like that. And then the interpersonal skills, cooperation, sharing, turn-taking, looking after others. No, that comes next in community. Community values, you know, being a part of your community, volunteering, looking after your neighbours, being connected with people and then the last one was civic so how to be a, a civic um, citizen how to go and you know talk to your politicians or protest outside your politician's office or go and have a meeting with the children got taken up to go and talk to Bill Shorten when we all thought Bill Shorten was going to be the prime minister and in, you know Charles said that the need for those climate grief workshops has you know <laughs> bloomed after the federal election that was utterly devastating for so many people who 
saw that as a devastating blow and the children were a real part of that as well because everybody thought that they were talking to the right person when they went and met with Bill Shorten before the election. Anyhow, that's uh, so bringing us up to the present, three minutes to tell you about the present, we've got a, a community up in Castlemaine where lots of people are very involved in climate action and relocalising the economy, which is sort of a, uh, it's like a transition town sort of thing where you, it's, a, it's a way of addressing both climate change and the threat of peak oil and relocalising local communities. We've got a conference coming up soon and my partner and I read uh, Margaret's book when we were on the ferry going over to Tasmania just recently and we started talking about you know well how do we help people to go into climate emergency mode and we are going to put on a workshop at this upcoming conference which we're calling Groundhog Day right Um, because it's just this recurring thing that keeps happening week after week after week until the problem's solved or until you know the government's moved into climate emergency mode and um, ground hug you know it's like embrace the planet it's like hug the earth that's the that's the idea behind it and on ground hug day what we thought we'd suggest to our community is that maybe we choose a day Friday we thought would be a good day where everybody goes into climate emergency mode and we don't work anymore for you know companies that are contributing to the further pollution of the atmosphere and on that day we do climate emergency things so we go and protest and we write letters and we um, give talks and we start to act as though our home is on fire and so I'm not quite sure how it's going to go down in our local community but it was inspiring to read Margaret's book just recently and go with that. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, all the panellists. Thank you very much for a quite inspiring collection of input and stories and I guess might keep some of us awake tonight. So thank you very much. Could we have some questions from the audience, please? Okay. Um, My name's David Mackay. I'm a psychologist. Yeah. When Charles quoted Freud speaking of the loss of pride in civilization after the First World War, it struck a chord <coughs> because in my age group, when I go and play over 50s badminton with people aged 50 to 85, it's very difficult to talk about our role in acquiring wealth and <coughs> in that process, discharging so much carbon that our kids are going to have a tough time. And I detect in some of these friends who don't want to go there, shame (coughs) that we've had it so bloody good. And you've mentioned grief, but I'd like to hear perhaps maybe Margaret and Charles comment on the role of shame. Absolutely excellent question and point. I think shame is absolutely one of the critical emotions that we're all dealing with. I, I recently read an outstanding book called Achieving Our Country by Richard Rorty. It's like a psychological political theory. And he talks about the, I mean, it's, he talks about the problem on the left of feeling so much shame for what our countries have done 
that we can lose the hope of something better. And he talks about the need to be patriotic, not for what our country is or has been, but for what it can be, that we need to achieve our country. And I just, so yeah, I think there's personal shame. I think there's national shame. And it's not to say, oh, forget all that. Everything's fine. But, but rather, there, rather to keep in mind and really hold dear the possibility for redemption. That yes, our country, both of our countries, and your generation, and I, I mean this, we, this, but this—it's not you know all all of us. No one's hands are clean. We are all complicit in this, and. So we, let's spend our days doing everything we can. I, I think that's, I think that's the way. I mean, I don't. So in terms of in terms of dealing with the shame of other people, I think empathy and compassion, and sharing. You know, like so if you, you know you can you're a psychologist, so you can you can interpret. You know, you can say, I feel so ashamed of the way that I live for the last thirty years. Do you ever feel like that? <laughs> you know, like, so, yeah. Yeah, look, I guess, yeah, guilt is one of a number of feelings, really, as, as Margaret says. And uh, there's a guy, or there was a guy, called Harold Searles, a psychoanalyst, many years ago, who has written a lot about all these unconscious feelings that go on. And I think it's true that there's a lot of unconscious guilt and shame as well. And I think probably... A lot of the older generation, like me, <laughs> have got a lot of unconscious guilt and shame which is denied. At a workshop recently, yeah, a person certainly talked there about their guilt and about their guilt even to do with being a parent and, uh, or being of uh, the older generation. But I agree with Margaret that really, yes, it's important for us to acknowledge guilt, but we've also got to really direct it towards, well, reparation and really taking action. We, as the older generation, certainly need to take uh, a fair share, in other words, a large share of trying to correct things. I'm Hans Speer. I'm an anthropologist. In the early part of my career, I dabbled with psychological anthropology, but these days I'm really more of a ecological anthropologist, and I'll direct my question to um, Margaret. I have no problem with governments declaring climate emergencies. I, I think that's uh, essential. But the reality is that in the world that we live in today, isn't it necessary to look upstream? I'm not sure whether engaging with business, as the Climate Summit was urging people to do, is the way to go because how can you expect the system that created the problem to solve the problem? Uh, thank you. We need to reinvent the world. We need from from the top down, uh, or I mean, for, I mean all of it. I think it's a good rule of thumb that whatever the topic, if you're thinking about it and approaching it the same way you were 20 years ago, 10 years ago, you're doing it wrong. Because 
that means you have not integrated this existential apocalyptic risk into your understanding. So I think all of the structures that you mentioned, corporations, the IMF, the World Bank, and so forth, they're, yeah, they're just all barreling forward the same way they have been 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And that is, I mean, that is like a huge red flag. I, it is absolute. So I'm, I'm in complete agreement that we need to transform the world. And my guess is we have a lot of agreement about how. But yeah, I don't, there's a lot that I'm really not sure about. And, and I, I think that's okay. I think that actually going to what, um, sorry, Sally? Yeah, what Sally was talking about, that these are questions that we need to discover the answer to together and through experimentation about different political and economic systems, that to me as a psychologist, my goal is that whatever we do, we do it in a framework of truth and don't let ourselves lie to ourselves. This is so, so easy to do. So yeah, I'm not sure how satisfying that is, but that's how I approach it. Hi, I'm Kate Grant and I've brought up three children. They're now all young adults and I've sort of got like a couple of a couple of questions, but the main one is about how to handle despair in others, particularly young people. I know not my children, but and I think perhaps because I'm what I'm modelling to them has helped them not feel despair. But to to some other young people I I know of or know their parents, and I hear despair, and some of them are in their own sort of mental anxiety states for other reasons but then when they when they're trying to be encouraged to get out you know of those states they say things like well what's the point the whole world's fucked anyway so I'm just wondering what we can you know that really worries me yeah and I'm just wondering what you think we can do about that despair of others and particularly younger people and young adults anyone can answer the question and the other thing I was just you know activism is amazing and fantastic but I keep hearing people talking about there's there's activists and activists almost like a dirty word and how do we change that around that taking action is actually what we need and we're the people finding the solutions and you know instead of being seen as oh it's just those activists again I'll start because the mic is right here. (laughs) Just to your second question, I really liked what the indigenous leaders at Standing Rock called themselves, which is protectors, water protectors. And so I think that's a good alternative to the idea of activist. And to people in despair, young people, any people, I think you cannot overstate the value of empathy. Just so ask them, you know, Tell me more about that. How does, it, how does it feel? What is it like to feel that way? When do you feel that way? Do you ever not feel that way? Does anything help? You know, I, I mean, that because, because again, our, our society is so messed up about feelings at, that it's, I think it's quite likely that they've never had that conversation before. So just uh, opening a space that, you know, your feelings don't scare me. They don't hurt me. 
I'm interested in them. I share many of them. Is it's, I mean, it's so simple, but it, it really helps. Look, just to reinforce what you're saying, Margaret, is so important. And I think for many young people, that feeling of isolation, but also of not being given ground, of being sold, like Margaret said, you know, this idea of how your life's going to be, which clearly is not sitting on, on stable ground. And so to be able to really listen to that for people, for the young people, is, is immensely important and to explore it. And from there, perhaps, to listen out for where there is any sense of passion or, and connection and to support that coming out, you know, if there's surfers, there's... There's, you know, there's clean up ocean surf things, you know, to to just be able to support that sense of connection and collaboration. And one thing I will say about activists being seen as a dirty word here is just to call out the media and how strongly activism has been really smeared by particularly right-wing Murdoch media and how, you know, how it's important that we do call out this idea that activism is... I mean, just ask, well, what, what do you mean? What, no, what was behind this idea that activists are in, uh, bad people are doing something, you know? Uh, it, it needs to be explored and questioned because there is such a smear going on. Yeah, look, I, as I was saying uh, when I spoke, I think despair is, is something that a lot of people do feel and it's very legitimate to feel. But I think, as the others have said, if it can be listened to, and it can be shared. I think to have to share the pain and to be in a group can create more more sense of hope, just in itself. The other thing I would say is obviously it is it may be important at times to say go and see a counsellor or a psychologist. But I and that's why also I was making the point earlier that I do think it's really important, particularly now, that counsellors, psychologists, psychiatrists are really climate aware. Because uh, it's one thing to be empathic about what the person's feeling about other people in their situation, but to be talking about how they feel about the world and about creatures, animals and things like that has often been rather devalued in terms of psychology. And and I think uh, uh, it's something critically important that really psychology hasn't... A lot of psychologists just haven't got it, just how much people really do feel the loss of the natural world. We all love your question. Anne and I have been following the work of this Swedish psychologist, Maria Ojala, who's done most of the work that we have seen when we've been writing recently on how young people are coping with climate change. And so she looks at problem-focused coping, emotion-focused coping and meaning-focused coping, which for the non-psychologists in the room is a pretty standard way of uh, looking at stress and coping in the literature. But the one that she particularly focuses on, which is uh, not doesn't get talked about so much, is meaning-focused coping. And she has found that the young people use meaning-focused coping in a, a few different ways. So meaning-focused coping is about changing the meaning that climate change has. So it's looking at different societal actors, which is uh, uh, what she's talking about, is looking around for the heroes and helpers, I suppose, really, you know, the people that are actually doing something about climate change. And that's a really essential one. And I became aware of the fact that many of the young kids who are involved in school strikes actually have the misperception that they're the only ones that are doing anything about climate change. And I was 
utterly shocked when I and when I heard this, and it made me realise just how easily you would feel despair then. And I was wondering why that is so. And then I was thinking, well, I suppose a lot of these kids, are 14, 15, they've just been given a smartphone. They connect, they bond. Uh, horizontally and they are just getting feeds from their peers. There was a lot in the media as well about how awesome the kids are and the kids were awesome. Um, but it was, I, I think there was a risk that it was giving the kids the perception that they're the only ones that care about climate change and were doing anything about it and that's so not true. And so I could see that there was a lot of work that we needed to do to help children see the different societal actors, the different people around the world who are working their butts off to try to create a safe, restore a safe climate. Hi, my name is John, John Knox. I've volunteered with many environmental organisations over the years. Currently I'm with Friends of the Earth Act on Climate team. If anybody saw the human sign on the weekend, we're responsible for that. It was an amazing, amazing action, but I feel like I'm a bit of a fraud because the sign was for less than 1.5 degrees C, and I actually think that that boat has actually sailed. Um, my, my kids, my son has decided that he won't have kids of his own and I can't even think of a way to bring, broach that subject with my daughter. Um, there are times when the grief is overwhelming and I don't know how to reconcile the activism and the telling of the truth with maintaining hope because I think without hope people won't take action but yeah the truth has got to be told uh, how do you reconcile that can I just start by sharing some reflections on the cultivation of hope and I've been really interested in Per Epson Stockness or Per Stockness Epson's work, yes that one, <laughs> Norwegian psychologist who's written a lot about the different types of hope and he divides hope into four different types. He's got a passive and active form of optimism and a pa passive and active form of scepticism. Uh, pessimism, scepticism, scepticism, I think. So active optimism, he talks about, you know, you think that you think it's going to work out fine, the future's going to work out fine, but you're going to have to do a lot of work to make that happen. Um, and then there's passive optimism, which is you think that the future's going to work out fine, but somebody else will do something, you don't actually have to do anything about it. Um, and he argues that optimism, it has a, it's pretty hard to make a good case for optimism these days. So... That's those two. And then there's the sceptic, the scepticism. And so passive scepticism is when you're not sure it's going to work out well, but you're not sure that there's really all that much you can do about it. And anyway, we've had disasters before, like Black Saturday, bushfires, and we know how to cope with disasters and we, you know, we'll rebuild and it'll be different and it'll be hard, but we'll be able to do that. Now, the problem with that is that we're in uncharted territory in terms of the size and the scale and the intensity and the frequency of these disasters. And this is one of the problems of extreme weather events being used as a proxy for climate change um, because climate change is so much more than extreme weather events. It changes absolutely every part of our society. So that one's not so good either. And then active scepticism is where you also think that the future is going to be bad and you're not actually sure that a good 
outcome is going to be had, but you're going to do absolutely everything that you can anyway because standing by and doing nothing is immoral and unacceptable. And that's what Joanna Macy calls active hope and Perst Epson... Stockness calls it, he calls it grounded hope, I think. He calls it grounded in the very reality of the, of the truth. And it requires us to develop inner strength muscles to keep on getting up each day and fighting for a better future, even if we're not sure that that better future will come. So that's very familiar, you know, similar to Joanna Macy's work. So that's some of my thoughts on that. Because if I don't, what other option is there? <laughs> Curl it, in a ball? <laughs> exactly, exactly. But, you know, I also do want to acknowledge the utter, how gutted you feel when your children or your friends say, I don't think I'll have children when you yourself have been blessed to take that journey and my daughter said exactly the same thing the other day and I felt absolutely sick about it. I went for a jog and I bumped into another woman. I told her and she said, I don't think you should talk to 15-year-olds about whether they're going to have children or not. She said, I never thought I was going to have a child until I was 37 and all of a sudden I thought, hang on a moment, aren't we meant to have children? <laughs> yeah, so, and, you know, she obviously she obviously wasn't thinking about a climate-altered future because I was thinking, God, but my daughter's 37 and I'm sure she's still going to be thinking that. But anyway, there are some conversations that you don't need to have now anyway. Mm. Um, yeah, thanks. Just very briefly, I like the ideas of active hope of Joanna Macy. I like the idea of purpose and purposing from transformational resilience. And I'm inspired by, as Clive Hamilton used, the example of the plague and the doctor and the plague, which is very appropriate at this point in time. The doctor just keeps going through the plague. He has to. Yeah, and another term is radical hope, and I think similarly that that same thing that there's a it's not about doing things because we know the outcome's going to be good. It's about doing things because they align with the sense of the world we would like to see emerge, whatever happens. And sometimes I think a lot of where we've been tested is to live to learn with uncertainty. Uncertainty has become a bit of a dirty word, but we have to live with uncertainty and to actually see the creative side of that as well as the difficult side of it. There's really three things that give me hope. The rise of the climate emergency movement, the fact that during World War II, our society transitioned its economy in just a few years so radically, and the fact that I actually believe that human nature is built for change and growth. I think we have the capability to be so much more than we are. You can get rid of your president. <laughs> Working on it. Hello, um, I'm Nicole Thornton and I have um, worked with Sally on the Climate Wellbeing Network, but I'm not a psychologist, I'm an environmental scientist, and I have had major environmental grief and depression for about 10 years, over it now. But one thing that's come up this weekend at the summit and here and elsewhere I've heard is that, and I want to get your thoughts and probably from all of you and from you guys as well, that the environmental movement has not talked about the hard truth and has not talked about the... The, you know, the reality that we're going to die if we don't do anything. And I actually disagree with those comments that I've been hearing over the last few weeks because through the 90s, 
in the 2000s, I had this conversation a lot and everyone was like, gee, settle down, you're a bit rough, aren't you? And I remember the discussion within the environmental different groups of Queensland, New South Wales, where we weren't supposed to talk about it because it was too scary and we were switching so many people off through the media and through things. So I think we've done it and then we had to stop it and then we've had to change our language, which is fine. So the question I'm getting with you guys is I've, I'm doing the same thing again except my conversation is we're going to die if we don't move. I had this conversation with Sally the other day and I know that there are people within my networks who are like, well, settle down, freak. But that's the reality. So how, and I know the choice of words is important but we have done it before and told these hard truths and got squished down and we're having the hard truths now and we're still getting squished down. I'm not talking politicians, I'm talking our networks, family, friends, people we know, work colleagues. How do we have that conversation, that hard conversation when people are like, settle down, you freaks, walk away and, and you, they dig in even more to not hear what you want to say because it is so scary when you don't always have the time to bring them into groups and they're not, their values are quite different on the surface to you. I know you've got to find connection, but what, what do you do? What words? Thank you so much for telling the truth for a long time. And I'm sorry that people told you to stop. Um, good, good. And I just, I just think the expectation that there is going to be a message that works for everyone is uh, not accurate. And I think that this idea that fear turns people off our society is off, right? So let's not worry about turning them off. Let's, let's worry about finding people to turn on. If you talk to 10 people and nine say, you know, whoa, what's wrong with you? And one says, holy shit, I'm going to become a climate warrior. That's great. And I'd say, you know, turn the question around on them. Well, how are you seeing it? And, uh, you know, open the conversation up, I think. Because what really they're saying to you, you can't talk about the hard truths rather than the hard truths aren't there. And we cannot go anywhere until we, as Margaret says, engage with those hard truths. And perhaps we need to talk about, we are going to die. We are all going to die. I mean, that's life. We are going to die. Because there's be, we are in such a death-denying culture that we're, we're resisting the, the knowledge that our culture has to die. This culture that we live in cannot continue. Now, hopefully, we can find a softer landing rather than a harder landing, but we may not because things don't look so great right now. And, but we need to find a way of talking where it's not just, shit, we're going to die. <laughs> we, we need to start talking about what's dying here uh, how can that, you know, how can we engage with that process of attending to that that is dying at the same time as looking to how we can nurture, heal and repair what can live on beyond us? Because part of this is coming to look at legacy and what legacy we want to leave in whatever time we've got left. Just Joe Dodds here. I just wanted to have a crack at answering that question because it's something that I deal with a lot because I've kind of, I think I've pretty well done those five steps now and I've become the mega activist and I'm just hurling my life into this mission. So the conversations with people who are resistant or aren't switched on seem to work best and, and this is not just my thinking, there's been workshops I've done where this has been talked about, but it's, when you talk about your own personal experience and for me that's easy because of, I was in Melbourne during Black Saturday, I was 
affected by the Tarthra fire in 2018 and, and I live in the Bega Valley Shire so we've just had fire all around us. So I'm like the expert now <laughs> at not getting burnt but, but telling the stories about it. When, when you tell that story, this is what I saw, this is what it smelled like, this is what it felt like, this is what went through my head, this is how it made me feel and this is now what I'm going to do about it. So telling those stories for me is a way of inspiring people into and, – and it's a narrative too. It's storytelling. And if, you, if it hasn't happened to you so viscerally, then you've met someone that it's happened to and, and you've clearly had your own battle with that reality. So telling the story of your battle with it and not expecting anything from the other person, you're just a storyteller. And then you let them process that in their own – way and if they're ready they'll step into that but a, a personal story is going to stick in someone's mind a long time longer than a, a kind of a you know a scientific fact or anything so and that's the thing that when I tell my story sometimes I see in other people's eyes the tears coming up and I go gotcha because <laughs> I didn't get their head I got their heart and that's the thing that makes you then want to act so that's that's my tip Uh, hello, I'm Anne Sanson, and I want to tell you what my feeling is after this session. is a very rare feeling, but a feeling of pride, of pride, which I don't often have in my profession and my discipline. To have five such insightful, wise, deep and moving—you know—people telling deep and moving stories and giving so much information up on the stage there. So to be proud of being a psychologist is not something I often do, but this time I am. <laughs> But I also wanted to say that my favourite term for hope these days is, I can't remember who said it, but stubborn optimism. That, and that's the one that gets me. But my questions were, well, I'll wait for Margaret to get back for, before I ask hers. But Sally, with my concerns being basically around kids, I really liked what you were saying about reflective conversations. And I was wondering if you'd say a word or two about from what age do you think that you can start to engage and how do you engage kids in these sorts of conversations or do you not at all? And my question for Margaret, if she comes back, was, really, was about fear and anxiety because you talked a lot about fear and the motivating force of fear. I guess what I fear in kids in particular is anxiety, and we talk about the anxiety epidemic. And I'm, you know, in some ways it doesn't matter because we say the best antidote to anxiety is action, so it ends up in the same place of action being the way of dealing with it. But I'm wondering if you see different ways whether anxiety has got that same evolutionary motivating force that fear does. I'm not sure that it does. So I'd be interested in your thoughts about that. So, yes, quickly just to answer you, Anne, I don't think any age is too young for a reflective conversation and certainly, you know, quite young, young children will, will ask the big questions. What's death? What's, what's life? You know, is the world going to be all right? I mean, I was talking with Christine here about her children and, and that question coming up with a very young, her young daughter. One of the th groups I sit in is a dialogue circle, which is simply sitting and reflecting. It's actually evolved from work of Krishnamurti, and he did that work in, in schools with children. It still continues in India. And the children are encouraged from a young age to sit and respond to some of the big questions in life. And, you know, 
in many ways, we can learn a great deal from sitting with children with those questions because they have a more open mind in some respects than, uh, than, than, than we do. So I really think, think any age. And children love to, to be asked how they feel and, and love to share that. And it's a good way to, to te help teach them to listen too. Hi, my name's Lewis. Thanks for the talk. And I really appreciated all the different perspectives you each brought. I guess my question is, as a young person and someone who's working in the field of mental health and psychology, I really connected with the um, Margaret's idea of the future that you thought you had and keeping up on that. I suppose my own position, I'm finding it ever harder to justify the idea of putting aside the years for um, studying clinical psychology and the, it's a very resource-intensive journey. So I was wondering as how all of you found yourselves here and if you could think about what brought you here and what sort of insights or advice you could offer to someone, a young person who is looking to make an impact and try and use what skills you can, they can develop to make a change in, in the environmental psychology movement and whether or not it's, I should just sort of give it up now and just go become an activist full time. <laughs> it's... It it's so it's so hard because the skills that you gain by studying and practicing clinical psychology are so relevant right like i i had one year left in my phd when i had my like climate awakening and i was i was ready to leave i was ready to walk away from the phd but every single person in my life told me to finish the phd and i did and then i walked away <laughs> but now I have PhD behind my name. But I, if I could go back in time, I would not change my education. I, wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't study science or, or something like that because, I mean, people, this is, a, this is a mental health issue. I mean, the world is committing suicide and we need to help ourselves stop. So I think it's very... <laughs> um, <laughs> glad that amuses. <laughs> yeah, black humor, yeah. So it's, that's a tough one. I mean, because the time frame is so short. That so, I, I mean, in the, in the United States, what I would say is, well, certainly take this year off, you know, and just, just go all in for the election. But I don't know. I, I don't, I, so anyway, I, there's, there's no easy, easy answer, but Yes, I mean, it's like, it's, yeah, try to skill up as much as you can while being effective, as effective as you can. Okay, I was just going to say, well, you could do both, because I guess what, in psychology for a safe climate, I'm in the lucky position of using my professional skills, but also supporting activists, so, anyway... I'll be really quick because I know everyone's. Um, I'm Sophia Villas, a psychologist, mum and an activist and just have a question around just at the moment trying to mobilise my children's principal into emergency mode and with the argument being if climate change is going to be part of every, imbued in every aspect of their life, why isn't it imbued in every aspect of the education? And as part of the truth-telling and the kind of moving stuff at the level of the heart of being compiling little bits of children's conversation I've managed to eavesdrop on or other parents have helped me be privy to over the summer around the bushfires and everything because it really strikes me that the principal has uh, appears to have very prof 
profoundly poor mind sight or insight into the children's minds, having a, a sustainability club doing the compost with five children once a week isn't really enough. And so I guess it's just a question about thoughts and ideas around mobilising principals and maybe more generally community leaders into that mode. Well, I think there's, let's say, the carrot and the stick. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be afraid to try to, you know, exert some pressure. You know, have, you know, and you can escalate, right? So have five concerned parents make a meeting and then bring their kids and then, you know, the kids can make signs or whatever, right? Like this, I mean, it, this doesn't have to be a polite conversation if that's not working. Okay, so that's, that's one thing. But I think also, I, I just, I, I think this, and this is generally in terms of parents and children and teachers and principals, the thing that children need more than anything is to know that their adults that they rely on are fighting for them and are going to protect them. And so I think you can tell the principal that by not acting, in fact, they are causing more anxiety and fear and despair in, in the children. Yeah, well, that's why I, last week, was it the week before, respectfully said my child will be absent for three days while we stand outside of Parliament with a we're not going away, zero emissions target sign, and she saw us drive all the way, not doing business as usual, for that purpose to see that, and the principal can be inconvenienced by that too. Thank you. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was thinking about Callum, who was Malou's buddy, who was in class five when he started the school strikes with her in Australia. So I'd be finding some class five kids that, you know, know that, you know, it'd be a good idea for the school to start a climate emergency and get them to go and talk to the principal as well. Thanks very much to our panellists for such a wonderful contribution and thank you everyone in the audience who asked such interesting questions and, and, and helped us all have such a good discussion. So thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening, and from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective This show is produced by Hear Media a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio.